Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Community Open Mic, is a compilation of stories from representatives of Traverse City organizations at a few Hearsay Open Mics this season. These representatives were featured performers alongside the randomly selected storytellers in the audience. This series of off-the-cuff stories were recorded live at the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan in October 2018, November 2018, and January 2019. Our first community partner, Open Mic, featured Norte. Norte is a youth-centered, active transportation-focused, neighborhood-based organization dedicated to building stronger, better connected, and more walk friendly communities by empowering the young and young at heart. This open mic was staged in October 2018. In the first community story from this event, Ty Schmidt, Norte's co-founder and executive director, has the good fortune of meeting the woman he will eventually marry. It was uh, fall of 99, and I had just graduated uh, from the University of North Dakota with a physical therapy degree. And uh, after five years in Grand Forks, and no offense to Grand Forks, great town, but the place is freezing. Uh, the, the winters are brutal, and, and which means something because I grew up in Manitoba. Uh, and, and, but I was cold, and I just wanted to go uh, as far south as possible. And my uncle Mark, my, my dad's older brother, had just moved there. And my parents, uh, thank you mom and dad, had just bought me this brand new Trek mountain bike uh, for my graduation present. And so I loaded this bike up on my car and headed southwest and on the way down to Tucson, I stopped at places like Moab, Utah and Fruto, Colorado and Flagstaff, Arizona. And man, mountain biking's fun. So much fun. And I get to Tucson and I roll into Uncle Mark's place and, and I start exploring Tucson and like, dang. Mountain biking here is fun too. Places like Mount Lemon and and Fifty Year Trail and Fantasy Island and Star Pass and and I started to fall in love with with Tucson, this Canadian guy uh, uh, in the in the deep Southwest. And so I started looking for jobs. And as a new grad out of PT school, I landed a job at the Rehab Institute of Tucson. And it was a great gig, you know, earning real paycheck and making friends and connections. And I. And I met this guy named Morgan, and Morgan was a pharmacy tech at RIT, also a bike nerd into mountain biking. Started hanging out and riding bikes and drinking beer. And, and on one of these rides, uh, Morgan introduces me to his friend named John. And John is from this town called uh, Traverse City, Michigan, and never heard of it. And uh, John's girlfriend at the time, Cherie, also from Traverse City, but worked at this restaurant in Tuttons Bay called Cafe Bliss. And at Cafe Bliss was this girl who also a waitress there named Johanna. And Johanna at the time was a student in LA at the Southern Cal and uh, PT program of the doctoral program. And she was coming home to Traverse City uh, during Christmas break. Um, and sat next to this boy, and like I've learned Johanna does, she makes strikes up conversations. So she's making friends with this boy uh, who goes on and on and on about Tucson and what a great place it is and what a cool town and you should go to Tucson. And so she gets back to, to Traverse City and is flipping through a, a physical therapy magazine and comes across this article about two PTs working in the emergency department at this hospital in St. Joe's. And on the cover are, are two guys, uh, Mike and, and John. Uh, turns out Mike and John are, are buddies of mine. I just left RIT and I'm working at St. Joe's. And this is in 2002. And after a couple years of physical therapy, one of your roles is to be a clinical instructor. So as students are practicing uh, you know, in school, they come to put those didactic and, and school book knowledge into practice in the clinic. So when Johanna back in LA at USC is, is thinking about where she wants to do her internship, uh, she thinks back to this guy in the plane and, and this magazine she saw and her friend Cherie in Tucson, so she picks Tucson. Uh, she picks St. Joe's. 
Uh, and as luck would have it, it was my turn on this January morning in 2002 to be in line um, for a student. So I walk out into the waiting room in St. Joe's to meet my student, and there's this girl uh, with gray pants, and I remember it like it was yesterday, and a pink blouse and long brown hair and olive skin, and she was hot. <laughs> so hot. But I played it cool, because obviously dating your student is 100% against the rules. Terrible idea. So I waited. I uh, waited until those nine weeks were, were done, and obviously she got an A, but then I made my move. <laughs> Fell in love, and, and three months later, moved into her apartment. A uh, year after that, uh, proposed to her, got engaged. Five weeks after that, we eloped alone in Banff, and, and nine months and three days after that, Carter came. <laughs> and we're back in, in, in Tucson and bought a house together, a little casita on Alta Vista Drive, and really started to fall in love with this, 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 this Tucson. The summers were awful, um, but they said you would get used to it, and we did a little bit. But we started to fall in love with the people, and the food, and the, and the culture, and the language, and the mountains, and the desert. And, um, but family called, and so in 2006, we, we packed up to move uh, back to this, to this town called Traverse City. So we moved north, Norte, to this little town. And it was the best move that I've ever made. Thank you. story from this event, Kyle McDermott is alerted to a bicycle theft via Facebook, and he quickly transforms into Kyle McDermott, P.I. Thank you, everyone. So I'm going to be telling the story of a stolen bicycle. And this story, like most good stories, will involve a trip to Taco Bell. <laughs> so the story actually starts off with a photo, actually posted by Ty, of his son and his Cannondale mountain bike, a really nice mountain bike. The unfortunate thing is the caption that was posted with it, which was, if you see this bike, please be on the lookout because it was stolen yesterday. So fast forward to the next day. And I'm out running errands downtown, and it's about lunchtime. And I think, I think I'm going to go get Taco Bell. So I start heading from like 8th Street through the neighborhood out towards Munson. And as I'm heading that way, I'm starting that mental battle in my head that, yes, you should go get Taco Bell, or no, you should probably go home and make a salad. And about halfway there, I actually, believe it or not, the salad wins. And I turn out towards Garfield to head home. And I get to Garfield, and I make a right onto Munson. And as I'm making the turn, I see two guys pushing a bike down the street a little ways. And I look over at it, and I can tell it's kind of spray painted. I don't really think much. But as I pass it, I give it a second look, because I'm a cyclist, and we just look at bikes. We're kind of nerds that way. So I look at it, and I immediately notice that it has a very unique characteristic. And that is that this bike has a lefty fork. Now, for people that aren't cyclists, a lefty fork is extremely unique looking. So if you picture a bike and you're looking at it from the front, it has two fork legs. So picture like my arms are the legs of the forks, or the forks on the front of the bike holding the tire. Well, a lefty only has one. So when you look at the bike from the right side, it's just a wheel floating in the air. And this bike has that. And my first thought is, that's really weird that there'd be a spray-painted bike with a lefty fork. And then... <laughs> Like five seconds later, I go, wait a minute, that's probably Carter's bike. So I immediately make a, a right-hand turn to start looping around the Civic Center, and I pull up the picture that Ty posted. I'm looking for any discerning characteristics I can find to you know, tell if it's his bike, because it's been spray-painted. And I notice the seat has a little red bit on the back of it. It's got some special grips on it. So I loop around the Civic Center, come back out to Munson, and make a left. And now I'm driving past these guys again to try to get a look at it. And I see the seat with a little red bit, and I see the grips. And 
go, okay, that's got to be it. So I put my turn signal on, and I turn down a side street and park, turn my lights off, and I'm just sitting waiting, just <laughs> looking in the rearview mirror for them to cross, walking this bike down Munson. And as soon as they cross, I jump out, and now I'm in full detective mode. <laughs> so I run up to the corner, and there's some bushes at the corner, and I'm peering around the corner <laughs> watching them because I don't want to jump out and start following them because in my mind, if I start following them 50 feet back, they're going to assume that I'm tailing them for this bike and take off. <laughs> and so I'm waiting and I'm watching and I go, what do I do? I don't have Ty's phone number actually. So I Facebook message him like frantically. I'm like, I think I found Carter's bike. You got to call me. Like, here's my phone number. Call me, call me. And he's not responding. And it's probably because Ty's entire mantra, what he lives is to not be looking at a screen, to be outside, to be doing things. So he doesn't respond right away. And I'm freaking out watching them. So I go, okay, I have to call somebody that I know that has his phone number that can get a hold of him. So I start calling people and leaving voicemails. And as the phone's dialing for the second or third voicemail I'm leaving to random cycling friends, I'm watching them and they turn off Munson. And I go, oh no, because I can't see him anymore. So I start running behind buildings <laughs> along Munson while I'm leaving voice, winded voicemails to mutual friends going, hey, call me, I think I found Ty's son's bike, and like hanging up. And I'm running behind the businesses because in my mind, if I run down the alley and these guys pop out to the alley and see me running, they'll naturally assume I'm coming after the bike and take off. <laughs> so I'm, for some reason, tucking behind the businesses through landscaping and parking lots, and I kind of lose them. I get a ways down to where they turned, and I, I don't know where they went. And I'm looking around, and I'm a little bit freaking out, like, what do I do? And I walk down the alley a little ways, and I find a sidewalk that goes from the alley up to Munson. I go, well, I'll turn down this, and maybe they, like, ducked back out to Munson. So I walk down the sidewalk, and as soon as I make the turn, I realize that there's an apartment to my right, like a first-floor apartment, all windows full of people. And I'm walking beside it, and as soon as I hit the front of the apartment, there's a bike, another bike, and I see Carter, Ty's son's bike, laying right there. And I freeze. I'm like, that's it. And then I immediately go, quit looking at it. You got to go. You're looking suspicious. They're going to see you. And I walk to the end of the sidewalk, and luckily there's a fence right there, and I duck behind the fence. So now I'm standing at the end of this fence, basically with months in traffic behind me, like just watching this bike sitting in front of an apartment building. And Ty still hasn't seen the message, so he still hasn't called me back. So I call 911. I call the police and I say, hey, my friend's son's very nice mountain bike was stolen yesterday. I found it and I know where it is. I'm trying to get him here. Can you guys send somebody? And they're like, yeah, we'll get somebody coming there. And as soon as I hang up, almost exactly as soon as I hang up, Ty calls. And he's like, hey, I'm right around the corner. I'll be there in five minutes. And he heads over on his bike. So he shows up, checks it out. It's Carter's bike for sure. So we come up with this plan while we're waiting for the police. They're going to meet at the side street in the alley opposite of the apartment complex, so kitty corner. So Ty basically goes to the far side of the apartment complex, and I stay at this side, and that way we have it surrounded. So we're in full stakeout mode now, <laughs> just staking out this bike sitting outside of the apartment. And we wait. And we wait. And Ty calls the police again. And they assure us they're on their way, but there were some more pressing police matters and a stolen bicycle. So we wait. And then in a little while, Carter actually shows up. And, uh, and you know, now it's probably been an hour or so. So he decides to go get Taco Bell for all of us while we wait on the stakeout. <laughs> so he gets Ty's order. He gets my order. He rides down to Taco Bell comes back, brings me a burrito, rides around, they finish lunch over there. We wait a little more. Police, off, police do eventually show up. They uh, take a police report, go through all of that, take our statements. They go to get the bike. Um, in, the, in the process of this whole time, you know, the length of time it took, the guy that I actually saw walking it left, not on the bike, but he left. Actually, when he left, I messaged Ty. I go, if he gets on this bike, I'm going to tackle him like Reno 911 style in the alley. <laughs> He's not getting away. But, but he jumped on a moped, ironically, and rode that off. But 
we did get the bike back. The people in the apartment didn't claim ownership, so Carter got to take it back that day. It was a little worse for wear, but it's my understanding Sutton's Bay Bikes has since cleaned it up, and he's back racing it, so that's pretty cool. And uh, if I could give you guys two takeaways from the story, one is if you're buying a nice mountain bike and you think you live in an area where your bike might get stolen, maybe consider a Cannondale because they're pretty unique. And two, if your bike does get stolen, my going rate as a bike detective is one burrito from Taco Bell. <laughs> Find out more about Norte at their website, elgruponorte.org, on Facebook and on Instagram. Also, check out the Moonlighting episode of the Hearsay Podcast, as Ty Schmidt was our in-studio guest. And, finally, we're so happy to announce that for the third year in a row, Hearsay is helping Norte kick off its weekly TC Ride series. Join us for Tour to Story on Wednesday, May 29th, for a combination bike ride and storytelling show keep an eye out for upcoming announcements about place and time. Our next community partner, Open Mic, featured Tart Trails. Tart Trails is an organization that seeks to enrich the Traverse region by providing a network of trails, bikeways, and pedestrian ways, and encouraging their use. Tart Trails believes in outdoor recreation, connections, sustainable transportation, equitable access, and health improvement. This Open Mic was staged in November 2018. In the first community story at this event, Madison Meter, the Tart Trail's annual gifts coordinator, helps to clear a dead deer found on a trail when she is an intern. Wow. It was an average day at Tart Trail's headquarters. Many of you may be surprised to learn that we don't actually work on the trails. We have an office with phones, stand-up desks and little brochures and things. And so we're all working away. I'm in the back room, which um, to sort of create the scene, our office, everything is sort of within earshot at all times, which is important for what happens next. So the phone rings. Chris Cushman, our trail planning and management director, picks up, says, <clears throat> hello, this is Chris. Oh, hello, Dick. Ah, okay, um, where exactly is it located? So I hear Chris get up and he heads back to Julie's office, Julie, our executive director. Her office is right next to the room where I was working. And I hear this, I'm sort of eavesdropping on this exchange that goes down. Uh, yeah, that was Dick Kelly on the phone. Dick Kelly is one of our uh, volunteer trail ambassadors. He said that a large deer carcass has been found on the southeast section of the Boardman Lake Trail and uh, he might need a hand in moving it. And so, as I'm eavesdropping, this sort of internal debate arises in me. How committed am I to being an intern? <laughs> Is this my day? Dick Kelly needs a hand, I've got two hands. I'm not very squeamish, I'm a regular blood donor. Things don't bother me like that. It's a beautiful day outside, I'd love to get out there. So, before I can really consider it any further, I call over to Chris. <clears throat> Uh, Chris, this sounds like a great job for an intern, and I'm in. So just like that, the ball is in motion. Dick arrives at the office, and uh, he's got everything that we're going to need. Um, gloves, a tarp, full-size pickup, formaldehyde, an alibi, change of names, <laughs> tickets to Cleveland. And so I hop in his truck, and we head over to the Boardman Lake Trail. So we know that the carcass is located in the southeast section, which, if you're not familiar, is down South Airport Road, kind of where the trail meets Medali Park. Um, so we decide it's best to park by Art Van, and then we're going to cut down through the woods and hit the trail and make our way that way. So as we are cutting through the woods, I'm kind of trying to steal myself for this situation. Um, I know that you know, contrary to what you might believe, I haven't spent a lot of time around dead animals. Um, so I'm trying to think back to times that I have so that I can really mentally ready myself. So I'm thinking about cleaning fish with my dad as a kid and that kind of gut smell. Um, I'm thinking about my cat Henry who got eaten by a dog in my front yard. That was a tough one. 
Um, thinking about, uh, I worked at a farm one time and we shot some goats and then we ate them in tacos. So I say all this to say that by the time I get to the trail and this kind of horrific montage of animal deaths is played out, I'm totally ready for anything. Uh, I'm also really quiet and Dick's probably like, what's going on? Um, but so we, we get out to the trail and we're scanning, scanning. It's high summer, so the foliage is really thick and we don't know how visible this thing is going to be. And about 50 yards ahead, we see two bicyclists come around the corner and one of them goes, ah! and we were like, nice, got it. So we make our way down, we pick up the pace, Dick's got the tarp and um, we're able to, um, it's pretty obvious when we get there that this is indeed a dead deer. Um, we lay down the tarp, and from this point forward, time is against us. You know, it's already ticking. Rigor mortis is set in, um, starting to stink. It's actually pretty gnarly to look at. So um, we get our game plan going. We lay out the tarp. Uh, we, we get the deer on the tarp. I'm on the hooves, Dick's on the head, and we start making our way back toward the truck. And so it's kind of a challenging process. You know, it's awkward, um, heavy. And uh, it's kind of this like shuffle step, stop, breathe, and, like rehoist and shuffle. Thankfully, a really nice trail user came and gave us a hand, so we were able to increase it to like three shuffles in between steps. Um, and so finally, we, we get the deer back to the truck, we close up the bed, but we're not out of the woods yet. I mean, we, we are literally out of the woods, but we're not done. We need to dispose of the body. So earlier, I had called the DNR and spoken to a nice lady named Holly, and she told me it was as simple as, you get to the DNR office, you drive around the back, and there's a dumpster there. You open up the dumpster, and you put the body inside. And I was like, well, <laughs> Holly, that's so easy. Why didn't you say something? She's like, I just did. So sure enough, we get down to 131. We turn into the DNR office. We follow Holly's instructions, and there's the dumpster. In theory, this is going to be very easy. But in practice, it was like, uh, not quite as easy. So we pop open the trunk, and we look to the dumpster, which is about this tall. And if you can imagine, me and Dick Kelly are kind of the equivalent of like, if like Danny DeVito were assisting Shaquille O'Neal in a situation like this, just maybe less upper body strength on my end. I'm Danny. Uh, and so we're like, okay, well, let's devise a plan. Um, we're going to be adults about this, and we're going to lift with the legs. We're going to get the deer on the tarp and just load it and dump it into the dumpster. So we heave, we hoe, and we lift it up, and we put it in the dumpster. Clap, clap. We hear a thud. Done deal. I think Dick had to put a little bit more effort into it on his part, but that's okay. So uh, we are feeling super accomplished. Get back in the truck. I head back to the tar trails office kind of feeling like a badass, kind of feeling like I've got a new skill I can add to my uh, LinkedIn profile, you know? Not many people can say this. And, uh, you know, I was sort of riding this high until a few weeks later when our Outreach and Programs Director, Brian Beauchamp, actually joined the same elite club with Dick Kelly. Only I am told that his dismount at the DNR office didn't go as smoothly, and I think he did later have to throw those pants away. <laughs> but I would let him tell you that story before I can. So I love this story for a lot of reasons. I love that it's become a really defining part of my internship with Tart Trails. Um, but I also love how it sort of uh, changed the way that I see this relationship with nature, um, especially on a place like a non-motorized trail. Um, it's such an interesting space where these, this human world and the natural world kind of converge. Um, but sometimes maybe a little bit too much. And uh, when you've got this sort of bloated, stinking, dead carcass, maybe you've got an intern or Brian to dispatch and sort of return to that harmonious balance between humans and nature. And as an added bonus, if you ever want to freak your friends out, just drive them to the DNR office, <laughs> go around the back, open up the dumpster, and look inside. Thank you.
the next community story, Steve Westfall, a Tart Trails volunteer, tells of grooming the Vasa Trail for the Vasa Ski Race. Years ago when the Vasa Ski Race started, and this story is about the Vasa Trail, which is part of Tart, um, when the Vasa Ski Race started, we started at the airport and they used a bed spring pulled behind a snowmobile to groom the trail. <coughs> you know, novel back then because cross-country skiing was still kind of bushwhacking sort of sport. And then somewhere, I don't know, early 90s or so, uh, skating, or classic skate skiing came into play and um, we needed a groom trail to ski on. So we started skiing on the snowmobile trails. It was great. You should have seen those guys come by in their sleds and there's 20 of us dressed in lycra skating down the trail. <coughs> I can't even imagine what they thought. <laughs> but they always weighed when they went by. So we decided we needed our own trail that we could skate on, as well as mountain bike on, stuff like that. So a bunch of us got together, um, got with the DNR, uh, got grants, and for the most part built what is now the Vasa Ski Trail. Took six months or thereabouts. It was uh, a labor of love. There was a lot of swearing and cursing that went on. Uh, but it got done, and I couldn't be happier. <clears throat> At the same time, we decided, well, we got to have a groomer. Well, we need a real groomer, not a snowmobile and bed springs. We need a real groomer. <laughs> so we bought this machine, which is LMC, which is Logan Manufacturing Company, no longer in business. And this thing was used for downhill ski grooming and snowmobile trail grooming. <clears throat> Best described as 24 feet long from stem to stern, large plow on the front, and what can best be described as a rototiller that's 12 feet wide on the back. You should see what this thing does to skier apparel left, left on the trail. <coughs> I'm really happy there were no skiers out there. <laughs> anyway, we, so we built the trail. We got the groomer, 100, all $125,000 worth, which 20 years ago, that was real money. And we raised half of that money. State gave us the other half because they got blackmailed, and that's a whole other story. Um, but it got delivered on an August day. And here we are, there's 12 of us in this parking lot at the Vasa Trailhead off Bartlett Road. And it, they bring it off the truck, off the, the uh, semi-truck. Thing's really big, 24 feet long, basically stem to stern. There were 12 of us openly weeping because <laughs> we had the groomer. <laughs> it was great. We have a trail. We have a groomer. We're in business. <laughs> Life is good. And then it suddenly dawned on us, who's going to drive the groomer? <laughs> so that all worked out, and we got some volunteers, some great volunteers, and we were off and running. And uh, uh, I, I could not be happier. If you've not been out to the Boston Trail, please go enjoy it. Whether you hike, mountain bike, ski, skate ski, classic ski, it's all there for you. It's all on state property. Tart is, you know, basically Tart's contracted to groom the trail and maintain the trail. But it, uh, it is on state property. So um, <clears throat> anyway, so we're off and running. We got the groomer. Life is good. We all got cried out. Um, still no dead animals on the trail. <laughs> then at one point in time I decided when I retire I want to be a groomer. I mean everybody loves the groomers. You know the groomer comes by, people throw rose petals, <laughs> <laughs> bow down, they go, the groomers, the groomers. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have this one groomer who's you know, like the most handsome groomer, and I've almost married him off like three times. <laughs> People, women keep asking me, who's that? Does he want to get married? <laughs> He's a groomer. <laughs> we actually did marry off a groomer. It was great to another skier. I couldn't even have to. <laughs> so anyway, I get involved in this harebrained thing, which requires you to like be up at three o'clock in the morning. <clears throat> which is a whole nother story, but you know, you get out there, it's dark, it's cold. You're out on the trail by 3.30 and you know, you're doing your thing. You're driving in the, the LMC, which is a nice warm, you know, cabin closed thing. It's 24 feet long and barely fits through the trees. And when I was learning how to drive it, the guy who was training me would sit next to me and 
he would go, tree. I go, what do you mean tree? He goes, tree. I go, what tree? He goes, you just hit a tree. I go, I didn't feel a thing. He goes, you hit a tree, trust me. <laughs> but I mean, it's 3.30 in the morning. It's like white knuckle driving in a snowstorm. <laughs> I took out a few signposts. <laughs> I hit a tree once. Um, and I thought it was going to come down on top of the cab. <laughs> Woke the guy up next to me. He was freaking out. He's going, what the hell? <laughs> Just a tree. <laughs> so on and on we went. Um, and then we started using snowmobiles for low snow conditions because the LMC groomer requires a fair amount of snow, and it's a big machine. I mean, this thing is it's, it's huge. It's like a bulldozer on tracks. So I'm out there one night, <coughs> and keep in mind that you know, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning, you're, I don't know, 4, 5, 30 miles away from the barn. <laughs> you're the only person out there. You see deer. You see bobcats, coyotes, yetis, <laughs> <laughs> humans running around naked. <laughs> well, at least I thought they were. <laughs> but it's 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> Who knows what you're going to see? <laughs> I'm barely sober from the night before. <laughs> So I'm going along one day, minding my own business, grooming the trail. This herd of deer, there's like 20 deer come down the trail. And they're coming straight at me, and they're not stopping. And I go, I'm on a snowmobile. I have lights. You know, it's making noise. They're not stopping. <coughs> I finally dove off the sled. I didn't think they were going <laughs> to ever stop. <laughs> That's not 100% true, but close. <laughs> And then there was another time, I was not in the groomer, but I got to tell the story because it's a great one. Another time, the guy was out at the LMC, remember this thing's 26 feet long, weighs four tons, has the giant rototiller on the back on a non-motorized trail, and a couple kids decided they wanted to drive their Jeep on the trail. So they're coming up the hill and the groomer's coming down the hill. So he did the only thing he could do. He pushed their Jeep into the snowbank <laughs> and then buried it in snow and then told them to get out and walk. <coughs> I can only imagine what they were thinking when they saw the monster coming down the hill. Wow. I'm pretty sure I know what their parents said. <laughs> um, then there was, uh, you know, it's like I said, it's 3.30 in the morning, it's you know, kind of late at night, but uh, there, there was a, I don't know if you guys know what a rough grouse is. Rough grouse is a wood bird, looks kind of like a chicken. And sometimes their brain waves go a little haywire and they forget that they're wild. Well, we had one that was tame and would come out and chase the groomer down the trail, chase the skiers down the trail. The skiers were feeding the bird. The bird was getting fat. He could barely walk. He was great. We, we named him 10K. 10K, yeah. <laughs> then in the spring, there was a mountain bike race. <clears throat> and he ran out to get fed by the mountain bikers. Well, I said no dead animals. I'm sorry, there was a dead animal. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> so, uh, you'll have to bear with me. I lost my chain of thought. Uh, went over that, got to that. Okay. Uh, when I'm done grooming, I go ski. That's what I do. I got involved in this whole mess because I like to ski. And, you know, it's interesting when you've been up since 3 o'clock and you've been grooming until 9, 10 o'clock in the morning and you go out and ski and you're really tired. But it didn't matter because I groomed and the trails were great. I mean, the trails were so good, it was unbelievable. <laughs> <coughs> then other times I'd ski. Did I get dinged? <laughs> 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 so I got to hurry up. Okay, all right, enough of that. Uh, so down to more serious facts. Cross-country skiing is not free, guys. Sorry. Bushwhacking days are over. 50 bucks an hour to run a snowmobile, $125 an hour to run the LMC. That's what it costs to groom. So buy a ski pass. Feed the, the, feed the pipe at the trailhead. Don't care. Just do what you can. And by all means, um, moral of the story is get involved. The Vasa Trail, Leelanau Trail, Norte, Tart. These all happened because people volunteered, they saw a need, they wanted to get involved, they wanted to do what they could. So do what you can. 
you know, if you like beer, open a microbrewery, <laughs> if that's your passion. But probably do it in another town. I think Pete's around here somewhere. Uh, have free beer on Fridays, <laughs> whatever the case is. Just do what you can to help. If you stand on the, if we all stood around and said someone should build us a trail, it would never have happened. So that's the moral of the story. And now my political rant. Vote tomorrow. <laughs> In the next community story, Brian Beauchamp, Tart Trails Communications and Policy Director, is called to help to clear a dead deer found on a trail when there's no intern in the office that day. When Dick Kelly called uh, the office about three weeks after Madison Meter's experience getting the deer into the dumpster, I felt kind of left out because I, I always wanted the bovine call myself. And so I, I said, well, I know I'm on staff, and I, I'll, I'll take that on. I'll, I'll go out there with you, Dick. And, and, and we found there was a deer, a call-in that a deer had been found, had been hit by a car, and it was on the side of Five Mile Road. And this was the middle of summer, so it was three weeks after maybe weather had been a little cooler by the time we got to this animal. Um, it, it had been uh, a couple days, I want to say. The, the coyotes may have gotten to its entrails. The, the flies were, were buzzing, and it was a rather morbid scene. Um, if you missed the story earlier, uh, one of the things that we have to do occasionally is, is pick up um, a roadkill from the the trail, or a trail kill, if you will. And I, I got the lucky call this, this particular day. Um, Megan wasn't working that day? <laughs> Madison was somehow out of the office that day. I don't <laughs> know really where she was. Um, in this case, Dick Kelly, uh, one of our Leelanau Trail ambassadors, came and, and picked me up. And um, I would probably be the Martin Short to his Tom Arnold. Um, I'm, I'm the Martin Short here. And we, we got the deer using the tarp into his truck, and it was a long, quiet drive to the, to the DNR office. And I, Madison, I don't know how you did it on the first attempt to get it up in, because we did the, we had it in the tarp, and we did the one, two, three, and it just hit the side of the dumpster and fell to the ground. So there's a lot of head scratching and scratching um, and we decided that the only way we were going to do this is to get underneath it and push it up and over. But like I said, the coyotes have gotten to it. And I'll leave the details to your own imaginations as to why I had to get a new pair of pants. <laughs> and we will be posting soon for a new intern. <laughs> and I hope you all consider applying. community story, Tom Phillips does pro bono legal work to help create the Leelanau Trail in the face of widespread opposition. It starts in 1902 <laughs> and it's still a continuing story. Yeah, that's what we want. We want to hear that. It's interesting. I said, okay, well, I'll do it if you think people really want to hear it. A couple days later, Madison gets back and says, oh, by the way, you have to do it in six minutes. <laughs> so I said, all right, well, I'll try. And then I came tonight. I hadn't been here before, but it's a neat thing. I love it. But I'm, I heard a story about a lost cat. And I've never heard a lost cat story that lasted more than seven minutes. I'm sorry, Karen. I, I know you set the rules, but that's all they are. Maybe five, maybe eight, but usually around seven. <laughs> then I heard a story about dragging a deer carcass off of the trail from Madison, my friend. Well, that shouldn't take more than a minute or two to tell that story. 
but you did a great job. It was a good seven-minute story. Now, my story put me on the clock. <laughs> it started in 1902, and it was when a railroad company decided to build a track from Traverse City to Northport. And before they could build the track, they needed the land to build it on. And so the railroad men went out up through Leelanau County, and they purchased 27 miles of deeds that ran from Traverse City to Northport. And I think there were 120 purchases along the way. And we got to ratchet forward to 1994, and that's when the state of Michigan decided that it would be a really neat thing to put a rails-to-trails installation on this old railroad corridor that wasn't being used anymore. And when that proposal was made, it was like a bomb went off in Leelanau County. <laughs> and the uh, local citizenry and government were 100% against that trail, and they were going to stop it at any cost. And the story is told before because it happens with just about any trail installation in any location. They are always vehemently opposed. So the railroad is coming up through the county in 1902 acquiring deeds. Is Connor still here? I need a good... Swedish or Norwegian accent. <laughs> Anybody? Well, I can't do it, but I can, I can try. So the railroad's coming up through, and they're paying big bucks for these deeds because they want to get the land acquired and build the railroad. And they were paying what would in today's dollars be about $7,500 an acre for these right-of-ways, right as they were called, but they weren't really right-of-ways. They were deeds to these 100-foot-wide long stretches of, of land. And um, I'm going to ratchet forward a little bit. We had about nine pieces of litigation over this over the years, and then in one of, the, one of the lawsuits, one of the lawyers had this hypothetical conversation that he imagined that happened in 1902 where the farmer's then was being railroaded to sell his property against his will. And he was complaining to his wife about how the he had no choice. He had to sell to the railroad. And when I was involved in this litigation, the counter-argument was that Sven told Millie, I sold a narrow strip of property to the railroad today for $500. They are fools, Millie, fools. And Millie replied to Sven, Halla fucking Lula. $500 in 1902 was a handsome sum of money for a <laughs> narrow stretch of property. Now we're going forward to 1994 in the state of Michigan. This railroad has now it's served its purpose. It was a boon to the county back for when it was running between 1902 and into the 1980s. And then there were other transportation options, and the train wasn't really needed anymore, and the railroad was being abandoned. And the state of Michigan had a rails-to-trails program, 
And they came up and they said, well, we will build you a trail from Traverse City to Northport on our dime, which would be taxpayers' dimes, but they'd be shared. And um, we wonder how you feel about it. Well, the meetings were just jammed with absolutely not every single governmental agency from Graylickville to Northport passed resolutions opposing the trail. There was a, a property owners association of people that had farms and adjacent properties and there were about a hundred of them and they formed an organization opposing the trail and posted notice that they would sue anybody that tried to build a trail including the state. So the state met such a hostile environment they bailed out and they said no and that was in 94 and um, the small group of people from Leelanau County um, they formed a Leelanau Trails Association group and bought the railroad themselves they didn't have any money but they bought it on a land contract and and uh, over the years through much, much controversy, um, we went through, I was trying to recall, I was, I was the attorney that represented the trail through this, and, and um, I think we had about 30 lawsuits, and we were in courts from circuit court in Michigan to the Michigan Court of Appeals to the Michigan Supreme Court to the Federal uh, Department of Transportation, to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, back to the Michigan Supreme Court. And the funny thing is, it was governmental agencies that were funding a lot of the litigation against the trail. And I never knew exactly how much they spent but I think, they, I think they spent more fighting the trail than we spent building the trail. Um, the long and the short of my story is it was one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. I was kind of midway through a small town law practice. I'd, I'd been at it for about 20 years and I was looking to get outside my comfort zone and, and I got involved in that. I've been, I've never had a more rewarding experience in my life. Um, this, the <laughs> the story is very, very intricate and complicated and I can't possibly tell it in seven minutes, but I'm, I'm I can tell a couple more things. Back when the opposition was uh, in full throttle, there were letters to the editor of all local papers almost, almost every day for a while. It was just amazing. Uh, I think a lot of the people here probably remember those times. It was pretty ugly. But um, I was just an observer at that point. I was interested. I thought it was a good idea. I was, you know, I, w I wasn't looking to get into any big fight, but I went to a few meetings and the DNR people that were trying to do it were shouted right off the stage by some of the local politicians were doing it. And um, then letters to the editor were saying, oh, there will be burglars invading our homes that are near the trail. They'll be trespassing on our property. They'll be littering all over our property. One of the classics was, there will be more rapes than you can shake a stick at. <laughs> True. And the village of Northport had passed a resolution against it. 
Leelanau Township had passed a resolution against it. The village of Sutton's Bay had passed a resolution against it. Sutton's Bay Township had passed a resolution against it. Bingham Township had passed a resolution against it. And Elmwood Township had passed a resolution against it. And the Leelanau County Planning Commission had passed a resolution against it. And I was still just interested in a trail, but I knew that this group was in trouble. I thought, hmm, they're opposed by every governmental agency where this thing's gonna be. They're inviting in burglars, <laughs> trespassers, <laughs> litterers, and rapists. <laughs> Sounds like a client. Find out more about Tart Trails at their website, traversetrails.org, on Facebook and on Instagram. Our last community partner, Open Mic, featured Up North Pride. Up North Pride's mission is to foster inclusive spaces that provide education, inspire activism, and celebrate community through the production of LGBTQ events in northern Michigan. In the first community story at this event, Elon Cameron tries to find her bearings when first hanging out in gay bars. The first time I ever walked into a lesbian bar, even though I'd grown up essentially going to sidetracks, I started going to sidetracks when I was 18 years old. It was 1990. We paid them $10 to get in. In 1990, that's like the modern day equivalent of like $35 <laughs> as 18 year olds. And they put like big X's on our hands so no one would give us booze or anything. And, uh, but we paid it because it was an oasis of queerness in Northern Michigan. And it was such a special place in that way because for this one night of the week, for this one period of time, we could just be free. And for me, that often meant dancing and not just dancing to music, which is normal and everyone does that, but at age 18, I had about 11 years of Highland dance under my belt. One of the many things that made me extremely popular as a teenager, you can imagine. Um, <laughs> so essentially what would happen is my friends would sneak me shots of alcohol or whatever kind of drinks they could until I was tipsy enough for them to convince me to do the Highland fling. Now, for those of you who know the Highland Fling or the other favorite, which was the sword dance, it's a very complicated dance that takes up a great deal of space. <laughs> it's not just like you're dancing in place. You know, like sometimes you see the Highland dancers and they're just kind of like bouncing up and down doing this, like holding their hands above their heads. But no, this is one where you actually like kick and like turn. It's, it has some kind of martial arts applications, which explains why I was so obsessed with it as an 11-year-old. And it's really, really great when you see someone do it well, which I never did <laughs> by my teacher's standards in the Highland dance class, but I did pretty much any Saturday night that my friends and I went to sidetracks. And, you know, this was like the late 80s, early 90s. The scene there was, was not the more intergenerational, welcoming, lots of queer people, lots of straight people scene that it is today. It's a very different place now. And so back then, it was very much like, who brought this crazy straight girl to our special gay bar who's like spastically flailing all over the dance floor? And I kind of picked up on that and cut back on the Highland Fling and the sword dance over time. But by the time I moved to Chicago, I was really focused on other things in my life and didn't really have a queer identity. And so I found out that, you know, I course found out there were lots of people who talked about going to like lesbian bars there were more than two in Chicago at that time there are less than two in the United States at this time perhaps a sign of changing times but I do think that that's interesting so back then in Chicago one of the two places you could go as a specifically lesbian person was called girl bar 
So girl bar was the place that you went if you were into sports, if you were one of those sporty dykes, of which I was not. And I, having, you know, had my sidetracks only training, moving to a new city, being completely unsure how to plug into my identity in any way, I just walked up to the bar and I was like, so what do you recommend? And of course, like the cranky older lesbian is like, beer. I'm like, great, I'll have one of those. You know, and it was just, n there was no generosity anywhere I turned. It was just all like, eh. Like, okay, fine. Just like hissing cats at every corner. And so I get my beer, finally, I'm kind of shaken. I sit down at a table by myself in a bar, which I'd never done before. And I'm just sitting there kind of like slowly hyperventilating, starting to have an anxiety attack. And I was just like, I have to get out of here. But the, the thing that was really interesting to me is I was, just, I was just trying to connect. You know, I was just trying to have a feeling like there was a community of people that I could connect to. And and my experiences in Chicago after that definitely indicated a lot more warmth in the community and a lot more people who are really interested in building community together. But that first experience is something that I always remember whenever I'm in a place and I see someone who's like, looks like they're about to twitch out. I'm like, hey, are you okay? <laughs> but if someone had said that to me that night, I would have been like, I'm fine, it's good. <laughs> like, there's no way it would have helped. But I think we all need different things in social settings. So. That's just my personal reminder that, you know, we, we may do a lot of things that seem like we know what we're doing, but we're all just big kids driving around these bodies that look like adults. And I think the more we can remember that and have patience and generosity with each other, the better off we are. So thank you. <laughs> In the last community story at this event, Johnny Cameron wants to break up with a girlfriend but isn't sure how and gets an unexpected assist. So yeah, dating. Like I came out in uh, at 20 when in the early 90s and at that time the language that was available to me was bisexual, right? That was like the safest thing. And um, I'm in Austin, Texas and you know, it's, to meet anyone that piques your interest and that is piqued by you is kind of a, an amazing alignment of the stars in, in a lot of ways, right? Just that alone. And then you add the textures and layers of being gay, bi, lesbi, whatever you are in the mid-90s in Austin, Texas, where a lot of the currency is really on, um, at this time, it's being androgynous, right? Like. Butch, like, I, I think the phrase is, no butches or fatties, was kind of, what? No fatties, no butches, no buys, no no was kind of like a rule of the dating world in Austin in the mid-90s. So it made for awkward times for me, but um, I had been raised as a, a debutante. Uh, I had been presented to society in my small town in Texas. And um, with that had come the deep indoctrination of how to wait and let them come to you. And, you know, asking somebody out that you're interested in, you just have to play hard to get. <laughs> and that's like really uncomfortable when you're coming out and you're like, yeah, this is what I, this is what I want. This is who I want to date. This is, um, how do I ask her out? What do I do? And it also adds to the other uh, thing that I think we can all relate to, LGBT, everything, and that is, are we dating? Or are, like, are we gonna date or are we just, are we friends? Are we gonna be friends? Um, very stressful. And so I'm, I'm thinking, as I'm thinking about speed dating and as I'm thinking about mingling, like how do you actually meet people and how do you flag appropriately and like all the awkward shit that's gone on for me leading up to this point. And I think about Varushka and I thought we were gonna like go hang out in the park. This is Austin, Texas, 97. We're gonna, you know, light one up and throw a football. <laughs> she had prepared a full sushi picnic 
and a blanket in the park. And here I was like, all right. We're probably, <laughs> I brought the joint, but we're not going to throw the football, are we, Varushka? Um, and in short succession, I would be invited to go see a movie but with uh, one of Jeffrey Rush's first features. It's called Quills. It was a story about the, I'm gonna, yeah, the Marquita, Elon's coaching me because she knows I can't speak the French. Marquis de Sade, right? Like, so the story of the Marquis de Sade and um, his fetishes, um, his sexual proclivities. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? Am I like, are we all kind of, okay. Necrophilia. All right, let's just do that. That was a part of it. It was. So, Shauna, Emily, Ellen, whatever her name was, she invited me to go on a to go see a movie and I thought rad I'm gonna invite Franny and we're gonna go see Quills and I had just had a new like little toy that like made fart sounds when you're when you put your hands in the little thing and it was just the best toy I was in my early 20s and so I went on I invited my friend Franny on this date and we ended up at the movie and this Shauna Emily Ellen whatever her name was was incredibly unhappy with me for bringing a friend because apparently we were going to be on a date but you know that was that time and she was actually kind of she looked a lot like Emily Ray from the Indigo Girls and I at the time was playing guitar with a young woman who um, refused to play the Bob Dylan Tangled in Blue and would only do the Indigo Girls version of Tangled in Blue and we'd have a little guitar thing and she was like totally into this girl because she looked like Amy Ray we were gonna be friends. Am I getting lost in this? I don't know, I probably am. It was a soup of dating. Um, it wasn't until I was working at a restaurant overlooking the wine and cheese department at the Whole Foods in Austin, Texas, um, where I, I laid eyes on the wine and cheese girl. And I would watch her you know, cut the Gruyere, I would watch her wrap her cheeses for for eight months I would watch her and she was so she was just like cherubian face freckles blue eyes just totally cute and uh, I really wanted to ask her out I'd watched her uh, relationship with the girlfriend end and I was um, I was gonna ask her out but you see I'd been socialized not to ask people out I didn't know how to do this so I'm like leaning on my brother I'm asking my guy friends, and my friend Edward uh, took me to a guitar shop. He was like, Carrie's going to be out of work at 6 p.m., so we're going to go play guitar. We're going to pick up this classical guitar and do a little Tangled Up in Blue by Amy Race. <laughs> Just kidding. And, uh, and then you'll like meet her after work. And so I um, I'm sweat down to my waistline, just incredibly uncomfortable, just pacing through the guitar store, pacing, getting tips on how to ask her out. And um, somehow I made it, I made it through. I, I met her right after she was getting out of work at the, the Whole Foods. And um, I managed something that wasn't totally mumbly, like, do you want to go to, would you like to, would you like to go to dinner with me? Could I take you out on a date? But like my insides were like, <laughs> just like shaking, and I, I, I think I haven't gotten the words out. But uh, so yeah, I took the wine and cheese girl out. That was very exciting. Spoiler alert: it's not who I ended up with. But I would, um, about that time, accept tickets to see Ani DeFranco, <laughs> another young woman and would um, run into Carrie, the wine and cheese girl, on my way out of Ani DeFranco with Adrian, and that was it for the wine and cheese girl. And that is a snapshot of my dating life in the 90s. I mean, I guess I could do a little epilogue, which is this. Dating's one thing, like asking people out, finding someone that you're jiving with and that you want to spend time with. Um, and that kind of like asking the wine and cheese girl out, that, 
that opened it up. I realized I could do it, and I started dating a lot more. Um, and there was one particular summer in Glacier Park where I um, was dating someone, and I hadn't, I'd been on the road for a while. I was just kind of doing this road trip thing, and I ended up in Glacier Park, and I was kind of swearing I was going to be chased. I was going to be a really, yep. And uh, <laughs> here's here, breaking up is hard to do, right? And like learning how to ask someone out is difficult, but learning how to break up with someone is even more difficult. Uh, thankfully, my mom had uh, was just in town um, uh, visiting me, me, and this young woman that I had been dating had been writing me letters and sending me poems, and I just couldn't quite break it off with her. And I really didn't know how. And I was like, that's so sweet. You wrote me a poem. And so she called after she'd left the park. And my mom answered the phone at the chalet that I was staying at. And she was like, oh, Jeanette, Jeanette, you were the one who read, who's writing letters to my daughter, right? Well, she's just not that interested in seeing you anymore. She's a bit of a people pleaser. So I'm just going to let you know how it is. <laughs> the end. You can find out more about Up North Pride at their website, upnorthpride.com, on Facebook and on Instagram. This year, Pride Week takes place June 17th to the 23rd. And join us on the 17th at the Workshop Brewing Company as we once again help to kick off Pride Week with a special Hearsay show. The theme of this show is Feels Like the First Time. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Our podcast is produced by AJ Scott. Thank you to our venue sponsor, the Workshop Brewing Company. And another thanks to our open mic community partners, Norte, Tart Trails, and Up North Pride. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Thanks for listening. <laughs>